World War I produced one of the most memorable images in American history. The U.S. Army recruiting poster that depicts a commanding Uncle Sam pointing his finger and urging young men to enlist in the war. They say that more than four million copies of it were printed between 1917 and 1918. It became one of the most iconic images of the 20th century. Reading about this poster, I found out that the idea behind it was to strike a sense of positive patriotism in the hearts of young men, to to infuse a sense of obligation to duty to the point where these young civilians would leave their families and leave their hometowns and leave their girlfriends to fight for their country. I'm thankful this morning, as I know you are, for the millions of soldiers throughout history that have been willing to do just that. Especially during wartime, men and women who, who, who would leave country and leave home and leave family to keep us free. But as important and as praiseworthy as entering the military might be, and as much as I knew, we appreciate that and it's praiseworthy when men and women decide to do that. Did you know that there is still a greater need in our country than for military soldiers? And that's the need for completely committed followers of Jesus Christ. And this is in essence what our text is going to depict today. Jesus Christ recruiting followers. He finds a few civilian fishermen, points his finger at them and says, I want you. Follow me. If you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter number one. We'll begin a brand new series through the Gospel of Mark that I'm titling Finding and Following Jesus. In the first 20 verses of Mark chapter 1, we're going to see what it looks like to answer that call to follow Jesus. The text divides into two clear parts. The first part is made up of verses 1 through 13, and it shows us why we should follow Jesus. The second part is found in verses 14 through 20, and it tells us how we should follow Jesus. So we're going to learn the why, and we're going to learn the how of following Jesus. Before we get into it, it's important for us to understand how Mark writes his gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's different than any of the other gospels. He gives us snapshots. Brief pictures of the life of Christ instead of thorough accounts. That's why it's the most concise gospel out of all four. And he strings these snapshots together to form a greater theological point. For instance, in Matthew's gospel, he talks about John the Baptist's ministry as does Mark. But in Matthew's gospel, he takes an entire chapter to do it. Mark, on the other hand, takes a few verses. In Matthew's gospel, he uses an entire half of a chapter to talk about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Mark uses two verses. Mark's not going to get lost in the weeds. Instead, he's going to take the most significant portions of all of these stories and he's going to piece them together to give us a bigger picture. To give us a bigger theological truth. And that's why you'll hear me and the other staff guys that will preach through this book of the Bible. You'll hear us preaching in larger portions of Scripture than what we normally would in the other Gospels because that's how Mark writes it. So let's dive in and see what all these snapshots in the first 20 verses teach us about following Christ. In verse 1, Mark begins building a case. 
for why we should follow Jesus. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. See the word beginning there? That word marks a new start. Jesus is coming on the scene. It's a new period in time. A new kingdom is about to begin, led by a new king. And that's why Mark introduces Jesus as the Son of God. That title has both divine and regal implications. Now, who was Mark originally writing to? He was writing to the Romans. And their allegiance before they came to Christ was to their Caesar. In fact, they called their Caesar the divine Julius. He was their God. The son of the Caesar, they would literally title the son of God. So they would have been familiar with this title. And here's what Mark is doing. He's categorizing Jesus as among the greatest rulers of the world at that time. So not only is he God's appointed king, not only is he Israel's Messiah, but he's also the one who rivals all others. He's the one who is superior to all other Roman rulers of that day. See, Mark is building the case. Why should you follow Jesus? And he starts right up front because he's the divinely appointed son of God. He's not another man. He's not another emperor. He's not another Caesar. He's not a popular celebrity or another teaching rabbi. Listen, church, he is God incarnate. God in the flesh. And we know, based on what the Romans practice was in this day, that when their emperor would come to town, they would prepare the way. They would literally prepare the road so none of their travel would be hindered or made more difficult. And God did the same thing for Jesus. Look at verse 2 and 3. And it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. You know what the Romans did for their emperors in preparing the roads? In, in some ways, the Secret Service does for the President of the United States. I mean, if you, if you read and study about uh, what great links they go to, to just make sure that the President's travel is, is comfortable and convenient and safe and productive, it's wild to what extent they will go to. It was wild to what extent the Romans would go to. They didn't even want a pothole in their roads where the Emperor was traveling. In the same way, God, through the Old Testament prophets, made a way for Jesus. And then through the prophet preacher, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is, is basically titled this, the forerunner of Jesus. He prepared the way. He didn't go out and prepare the roads for Jesus. He prepared the hearts for Jesus. And Mark spends four verses talking about this John the Baptist. Look at, look at verse 4. John did baptize in the wilderness... And preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem were all baptized to him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair. My dad would die for that haircut. <laughs> and with the girdle of a skin about his loins, and he did eat locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me. The latchet of whose shoes I'm not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water, but he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. So Mark points out some things about John the Baptist that made him a powerful prophet preacher. He started with the fact that John the Baptist was bold enough to preach on the repentance of sins. This would have been a countercultural message, but he preached it anyway. 
He went one step further and he had the boldness to baptize these people who repented of their sins, signifying their repentance and new life in Christ. It would actually be something he would later be in prison for and beheaded for doing. He was also committed, Mark says, to living the separated life of a prophet. He had a wilderness wardrobe. He had a wilderness diet like that of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Jesus himself said in another, in another gospel that there was not a greater man born to woman than John the Baptist. But here's the point. John the Baptist himself, in spite of that great resume that Mark writes for him, declares that there was one mightier than him. One mightier than all the prophets before him. One whose shoelace he wasn't even worthy to untie. And that was Jesus Christ. John the Baptist declared this, don't follow me. I'm just preparing the way. I'm just the forerunner. There is one greater than me, superior to me, and all my prophet buddies before me, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's worth following. Mark continues to make his case through a snapshot of Jesus' baptism. Listen closely. So far, he has said, here's why you should follow Jesus, because he's the divinely appointed son of God. Here's a second reason for why you should follow Jesus. Well, because he's greater than anybody before him. And then notice what Mark teaches us through his baptism in verse number nine. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, thou art my beloved son in who I am well pleased. Now look up here. Through Jesus' earthly baptism, he did what no other earthly ruler or emperor in his day was willing to do. And that was to identify with the common man. You see, the Caesar in that day, and the Romans were the original readers, the Caesar in that day, he always placed himself above the people. Wouldn't even let a pothole be in the road where he was traveling. Would never shake hands with the common man, let alone get baptized in dirty water. Yet Jesus, who's the divinely appointed son of God, superior than all those other Caesars, he, he was sinless. He did not need to repent of sins. Thus, he did not need to get baptized to signify the repentance of sin. He got baptized anyway. Why? To identify with the man he was coming to save. Yeah. On top of that, he was endowed by the Holy Spirit. God came upon him in the form of the Spirit, something no other ruler of that day could claim. On top of that, he was endorsed audibly by his father from heaven. His father looked down and said, that's my boy. That's my son. I approve of him. I'm pleased by him. I endorse him. There hasn't been a president in our lifetime or there will ever be that will get a public audible endorsement from God in heaven. I don't care how wholesome he is or she is. This is a unique experience. What is, John, what is Mark pointing out? He's worth following because he's divinely appointed son of God. He's worth following because he's superior to anyone that came before him. He's worth following because he's endowed by the spirit and endorsed, 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 endorsed by the father. But then he points out one more thing through a snapshot. Just a quick scene of Jesus' temptation. Look at verse number 12. And immediately the spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered unto him. 
So Jesus, we know from other gospels, was fasting. He wasn't eating a thing for 40 days. He was already physically vulnerable. And the devil attacked him, trying to get him to give up his deity, trying to get him to sin against his father. But with the help of the Spirit of God, the, the help of the ministering angels of God, Jesus remained sinless through all 40 days of temptation. In other words, he passed a test that the common man in that day, including Caesar himself, could not pass. Now, this would have made a big impression on Mark's readers because they knew that Caesar was not sinless. Yet they called him God. And then for them to hear how Jesus did what Caesar could never do. Be in the wilderness, sinless under the temptations of the devil for 40 days and not even give in one time. That would make a powerful impact. Here's Mark's point. Jesus is triumphant over Satan. He's triumphant over sin. He's triumphant over temptation. On top of that, he's endowed by the Spirit. He's endorsed by the Father. On top of that, he's the divinely appointed Son of God, superior to anyone that came before him. And he is the one worth following. Wait, what a resume that Mark gives him. And yet, in spite of such a, a supernatural resume, there were Romans in that day that still snobbed Jesus and chose to be loyal to their Caesar instead. And in spite of everything we know about our God, there are Christians in 2021 that hear him say, I want you. And in their minds, they say, I don't know if that's worth it. And they snob Jesus and they follow him for things lesser than the son of God. I, I think there probably are some in here that are doing that thing right now. It doesn't matter what Jesus' resume is. It doesn't matter who he is. It doesn't matter what he can do in your life as compared to what those lesser things pretend to do in your life. There's just some people in 2021 that, 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 that they might come to church, but by the way, just because you come to church, it doesn't make you a follower of the King of Kings. And there are some people who have been introduced to Jesus, invited to follow Jesus, but they aren't ready to make Jesus the king of their life. And so they commit to following the lure of the almighty dollar. They commit to following the illusion of success, the deception of pleasure, the idol of sports, more than they follow Jesus. Tell me, please, in what way is the dollar your success? Sports, pleasure. In what way do they compare to the divinely appointed Son of God? Sent from the Father, endorsed by Him, endowed by the Spirit, superior to anybody before Him, and triumphant over sin. In what way do they compare to Jesus Christ? Here's Mark's point. They don't. And so there's no excuse. No excuse for you to say, oh, he's not worth following. Oh, he's worth following. No one compares to Jesus. Oh, okay, Brother Tyler, then, then if, if Jesus is worth following indeed, how, what does that look like? I mean, how do I accomplish that? I believe, Mark, I think you've made a good case for why he's worth following above anyone or anything else, but, but tell me what that looks like. And that's what the next section is about. And Mark's going to tell us in two ways what that looks like. He's going to show us through Jesus' first sermon. And then he's going to show us through Jesus' recruitment of his first followers. Look at verse 14 and 15. Now, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God 
and saying, here's his first sermon in red letters, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Why should we follow Jesus? Because he's worth following. But how do we follow Jesus? Well, he shows us right there in verse 15. You repent and you believe. That's where following Jesus begins. Now, now watch here. These two words are equally essential to becoming a follower of Christ. They're connected to each other. Here's what I mean by that. They're simultaneous movements. Watch me. To repent means you turn from something. To believe means you turn to something. So we're talking about two very connected ideas. A simultaneous movement spiritually in your heart of turning from something and turning to something. What are we repenting of? If if that's what we got to do to follow Jesus, what are we turning from? Well, in this day, John the Baptist and Jesus himself was provoking their listeners to turn from their religious system. He was speaking to Pharisees of this day who were caught up in all the externals. Pharisees were were the ones that would always wear the WWJD bracelets, the Jesus t-shirts, the fish bumper stickers that says, I got Jesus to you. Honk if you love Jesus. And if you didn't honk, you're going to hell, basically. I mean, that's how the Pharisees handled life. It was all about the external. And Jesus was preaching, no, you got to repent from a reliance on your behavior. Because your behavior, as good as it might be, will not get you into heaven. And some of you here, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you're going to have to repent of the same thing. You're going to have to repent of relying on anything other than Jesus to get you to heaven. For some of you, that's the fact that you grew up in a Christian home. And so you've got this Christian heritage. And you think that because you're born into a Christian home, then you're automatically going to go to heaven. But you can't sleep in a garage and become a car. And so it's impossible for you just because you grew up in a Christian home to be a Christian. Listen to me, being a follower of Christ is a personal decision. It's not one your your parents make for you when you're a baby and and they, they sprinkle holy water on you that came from the same faucet that you drank out of 15 minutes before that. It has nothing to do with what your parents chose for you. It's this question. Have you chosen for yourself? Have you chose for yourself the Lord Jesus Christ? So some of you need to repent from that. Some of you need to repent from a reliance on your good deeds, your benevolent deeds, your generous deeds. You're raised in a good family. You're a good employee. You're involved in boards in town. You're, you're a benevolent person. You'll, you'll, you'll take the back, the shirt off of your back, the back off your shirt, the shirt off of your back, and, and you'll give it to somebody who is in need. You're a good guy. You're a good lady. People can rely on you. And you are thinking, maybe because you've been taught your whole life, that, that so long as those T's are crossed and those behaviors your eyes are dotted, then you're going to heaven. But please listen to me, friend. You don't go into heaven by what you do or don't do. And some of you need to repent from that. Here's the point. Anything other than Jesus that you're relying on to get you into heaven, you got to turn from. But you're turning to something. That's what belief is. What are you turning to? What does Jesus preach in the red letters of verse 15 for us to believe in? The gospel. He said, repent, turn from, and then turn to the gospel. What's the gospel? The very word means this, good news. What's the good news that we're supposed to believe in and turn to? The good news of Jesus. 
That he came to earth as God in the flesh, lived a perfect life for 33 and a half years, died on a cross, but didn't stay dead. We're going to celebrate that on April the 4th. He was raised uh, from the dead and, and then he ascended back up into heaven. And he did all of that so that you could go to heaven with him. That's good news. The bad news is you can't get there by yourself because you're a sinner. And sin cannot be in the presence of God unless it is made right through his son, Jesus Christ. What does that look like? It means you repent of anything you're relying on, turn from anything you're relying on other than Jesus, and you run to the cross. You run to what Jesus did for you and say, Jesus, I can't get myself to heaven. I can't do enough good deeds to get myself to heaven. I'm sick of wondering whether or not I'm going to go to heaven. I want to believe in what you did for me to take me to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's where following Jesus begins. You repent, then you believe. One simultaneous movement. May I ask you today, have you done that? No, that's the starting point, friend. That's the first first growth step. Believe. Have you taken that step? Have you turned from anything other than Jesus and believed fully in the gospel for your salvation? If not, Boy, I pray you'll get saved today. But following Jesus doesn't end there. Because Mark gives us one more snapshot of when Jesus was recruiting his first followers. Four ordinary guys by the name of Andrew, Peter, James, and John. Look at verse 16 through 20. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew's brother casting a net into the sea. For they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, watch here, come ye after me. In other words, follow me. And I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway or immediately they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little farther thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway or immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. How do we follow Jesus? You repent and believe. And then here's what you do. You follow and fish. You repent and you believe. Then you follow and fish. See, here's what Jesus knew, Brother Sid. Jesus knew that he only had three and a half more years, about three years by Mark chapter one, left in his life on earth. And here's what he knew. Um, I've got to recruit some followers. Ones that I can teach to preach the gospel and fish for the souls of men. Um, Because I'm not always going to be here and I'm unwilling that any should, should perish. I want all to come to repentance. I want all to join me in heaven when they take their last breath. And I've got to recruit men and I've got to recruit women that will follow me and preach the gospel well after I'm gone. So he starts with these fishermen. These fishermen were not weekend fishermen. Most of us today, when we think of fishing, we think, oh, I'm going to go to the lake for a weekend. That's not what they were doing. This was their livelihood, ladies and gentlemen. This, is, this was their eight to five and sometimes longer. In fact, James and John's fishing business was so successful that they had to hire servants. And yet Jesus said, hey guys, follow me. What did he mean by follow me? If we're supposed to follow and fish, what does follow mean? Well, it's implied in what James, John Andrew and Peter did. Did you see what they did in verses 18 and 20? They forsook all. Look look at verse 18. And straightway they forsook their nets 
and followed him. Verse 20, and straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship. See you, Dad. Take care of the business for us. And went at, I mean, immediately, they forsook all and followed Jesus. Now, now, we don't like to talk about this part of following Jesus. The sacrifice part, the suffering part, the forsaking part, the, the radical change part. We don't like to talk about those things because we think we're going to scare people away. And so a lot of preachers today, they're salesmen. You know what that means? They put the word believe in bold print and the word follow in fine print. They want to say, all you got to do is believe in your heart and everything's going to change in your life. They don't want to talk about how to really be a follower of Jesus through sacrifice and change and commitment and surrender. That, that won't put rear ends in the seat and dollar bills in the offering plate. But I'm here to preach to you the whole counsel of God. Because following God is a serious, serious business. If men would leave their nets and their boats and their families and their business to do it, then we ought to be willing to sacrifice something ourselves. In fact, you can study Jesus' Gospels. And, and do you know how many times that he called people to believe in him? About five. Do you know how many times he called people to follow him? About 20. Jesus didn't put follow in the fine print. No, in fact, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, check out one of his recruitment speeches. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. This is no catchy slogan. And take up his cross, a symbol of suffering, and do it every day. And follow me. There was no fine print to follow in Jesus. He said it demands sacrifice and suffering. In other words, if you're not forsaking anything, you're not really following Jesus. No, ask yourself that question. If you haven't forsaken anything to follow him, are you really following him? If you've never dropped a net... You never walked out of a boat. You, ne you never cut ties with the relationship. If there's never been any forsaking in your life, has there really been repentance? It reminds me of one day that I, I went and worked out. This time I was working out at Southwest Fitness and Racquetball here in town. And I had just finished my workout and, and, and I was walking out. And I, I was going to my car and, and, and saw another guy that crossed me in the parking lot. He had workout clothes on, so I took for granted that he was going to go get a workout in. But, but he had a 44-ounce a cup from Sonic in his hand. And he had one of them long spoons. It wasn't a straw, so it wasn't water with lemon. And I got in my car and I said, I can't drive off because this might be a sermon illustration. And yes... I was judgmental and I watched the guy. <laughs> Forgive me, Lord. And he didn't just throw it in the trash and walk in. He said they had a little brick, little brick wall thing there. And, and he sat down and he just finished off that milkshake. And I thought, man, I got to confirm what was in that cup exactly. <laughs> and so when he went in and I saw that he was out of sight, I went and looked in the trash can. <laughs> I'm lying, I'm dying. It's a 44-ounce chocolate shake. Not a protein shake, ladies and gentlemen. A chocolate shake from Sonic. And so I go in just to make sure he wasn't maybe an employee, because that would make sense. I want to know, is this guy really working out? And I walk in, and I, he's on a treadmill. He wanted to get in shape, but he didn't want to forsake the milkshake. Some of y'all are there. 
You're there physically, but you're most, you were there spiritually too. Now I need to put down the milkshakes. In all seriousness, we say, I'll follow Jesus, but let me finish my milkshake first. Hey, I'll follow Jesus just so long as I get to take my, my net and my boat along with me. Reminds me of a, another story I read about what they called the Knights of Templar. And, and, and some of these guys supposedly came to Christ. And during their baptismal service, it was very interesting, they would take their swords with them. And they would walk their swords with them into the water, clutching to it proudly and tightly. The preacher would baptize them, immerse them underneath the water completely. But you know what they did? Historians say they kept their sword above the water. So as to make this clear, God, you can have all of me but this. Ooh, hey, God, everything I do is, underneath, is under your control. I surrender to you. But what I do with this sword and how I use this sword and what I do on the battlefield, well, that's between me and my men. And listen today, many of you wouldn't hold up a sword, but you'd hold up a credit card. You'd hold up a hobby. You'd hold up a relationship. You'd hold up a career. You'd hold up your children. You'd hold up your grandchildren. And you'd say this, God, I'll follow you with everything except this. But that's not what following Jesus looks like. In Jesus' mind, here's what it looks like. All or nothing. He said forsake all. I'm not asking you to quit your job. I'm not asking you to sell your boat. I'm not asking you to forsake your family and... Go be a missionary unless God's asking you to do that. But I am asking you to reorient your entire life to be around the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what following him looks like. But just like there is an accompanying word with repent, repent and believe, there's also a word that accompanies follow. And it's fish. Because verse 17, he said, come ye after me and I will make you to become fishers of men. Now follow me. Following Jesus doesn't mean we get to collect our get out of hell free card and go on. It doesn't mean that we get our lifetime membership to the Jesus Club and that's it. No, following Jesus includes enlisting in Jesus' mission, which he calls in this passage fishing for men. The way we say that fellowship is helping people find and follow Jesus. Yes, following Jesus begins when you repent and then you believe, and yes, then you follow. But you know where it ends? With you making your life all about helping other people do the same thing you've done. And there's an interesting detail in this text. I want you to notice that the first part of chapter 1, the main character is John the Baptist. And he's preaching the gospel, fishing for men. And then the next main character is Jesus. He's baptized. John the Baptist is in prison. And it's like John the Baptist hands him the baton and says, your turn. And Jesus preaches the gospel and he begins fishing for men. And later we'd find out that Jesus would be crucified for doing that very thing. And he passed the baton to Peter and Andrew and James and John and a few other men and said, it's your turn. Fish for men. Preach the gospel. And if you study history, you'll find that all of those men were killed and martyred for preaching the gospel. And as though Mark is, is leaving an open-ended question at the end of this text saying, hey, whose turn is it now? 
It started with John the Baptist, the Old Testament prophets actually, then John the Baptist, then Jesus, then the disciples, and now it's almost as though Mark is asking us, will you be next? It's our turn. It's the church's turn to preach the gospel. It's the church's turn to, to fish for men. We don't need any more forerunners. Jesus isn't coming back to heal diseases. He's coming back to get his church when he comes back next. But until then, we have taken the baton. We've got the fishing rods. And we are just supposed to be fishing for the souls of men. It's as though Jesus is in this text pointing to us and saying, I want you. Will you follow me? And when you fish for men, the story of a couple who believed Jesus was worth following. And so they forsook all and they spent their life helping people find and follow Jesus. You might know who they are. Their names were Adoniram and Ann Judson. Adoniram felt called to Burma to preach the gospel because there was not a single missionary preaching the gospel there because it was such a hostile environment. When he felt called, he was 24 years old. But he was in love with a girl named Anne who was 23 years old. And he wanted to marry her first and then go together as a couple to be missionaries in Burma, to fish for men. So he wrote Anne's father a letter. And it said this. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of wanton distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? With the crown of righteousness? How would you feel if you got that letter? Well, the story says that her father said, well, it's Anne's decision. It's up to her to decide. And so Anne wrote a letter herself to her best friend about this decision, whose name was Lydia Kimball. And Anne said this, I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have about come to the determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God and His providence shall see fit to place me. So together in 1813, they left for Burma. They'd experienced one hardship after another. In 1824, Adoniram was put in prison. He was there for 18 months. At night, his feet were tied up and hoisted up in the air until only his shoulders and head rested on the ground. It was 110 degrees, and the mosquitoes would eat him alive at night. When he went to prison, Anne was pregnant, but she walked two miles every day to plead for Judson to be released. After a year in prison, eating rotten food, had an iron and wasted away, had hollow eyes. But his daughter Maria was born while he was in prison. Anne became as sick as, as had an iron was. Her milk dried up, thankfully, the jailer let Justin, uh, Judson out of prison each evening so he could take his daughter into the village and beg for women to nurse the baby. Eventually, Adoniram was released. Not long after he was re released from prison, Anne died of spotted fever when she was 37 years old. 
But because of Adoniram and Anne's efforts, the entire Bible was translated into the Burmese language. Today, there are over 3,700 churches that all trace their beginning to when Adoniram and Ann Judson heard God, to say to th- heard God say to them, follow me. And they forsook all and made their life about following Jesus and helping others find and follow Jesus. Church, listen. Chances are there might only be one or two in here today that Jesus is pointing at and saying, I want you to go to Burma. I want you to forsake all, leave the comfort of the United States of America, and I want you to preach the gospel and reach the lost in a, in a country that, that has never been taught the gospel. There are only a couple maybe in here. And can I say to you, if God is speaking to you about that, you should say yes. But the vast majority in here are being called by God to follow him right where you're at. And to help people find and follow Jesus right where you live. Would you listen to me, please? Your workplace needs Adonirams and Ann Judsons. Your family needs an Adoniram and Ann Judson. Our community needs a church full of Adoniram and Ann Judsons. God is calling on every one of us to believe, repent, follow, and fish. My question to you is this, will you answer the call? He's worth it. He's the divinely appointed son of God, superior to anybody that came before him, endowed by the spirit, endorsed by the father, triumphant over sin, unlike anybody else that has ever walked the face of the earth. He is the son of God worth following and he wants you. Will you follow him when you go to work tomorrow? To those who need to start with believe, I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a moment to make that decision. We have an invitation, a public invitation, where you can come forward and you can call upon Christ to save you. If you need to do that, would you do that today? Would you you turn from whatever you're relying on other than Jesus? And turn to the gospel alone to save your soul. Would you do that today? I'll show you how in just a moment. Some of you, you, you just simply need to follow. You know you've, you've believed. You know you've repented. But honestly, there's no sacrifice in your life. Church is just an accessory. Jesus is just an add-on. You understand that there are two lives that you live. One in church and one out of church. And that's not being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. There might need to be some relationships that are severed. There there might need to be some things that are surrendered to God, some nets that we leave behind, some boats that we leave behind and say, Jesus, you're going to get all of me. You're not going to be one of many in my life. You're going to be one and only. And maybe that's what you need to do today is follow. And then for the rest of us, I'm going to give you a very specific challenge and how you can fish for men over the course of the next several weeks. If you got a bulletin, you should have received one of these cards right down here. And I've got stacks extra if if, if you didn't receive one of these. It says, I commit to pray for and invite. Then it's a space to fill in a name to Easter 2021. If you're wondering what the cross is there for, I'm going to ask every church member to write a name in there. Whoever God lays on your heart. Write it. It could be a family member, a co-worker, child, a grandchild an adult child, a parent. You're going to write that in there. 
And then during the invitation today or after services today or when you come back tonight, you're just going to drop that in there. Every week before every service, the Sid is going to tack these to that cross. The front and the back. And we're not going to go and inspect every name. We're just going to see this from a distance three times a week until Easter Sunday. And we're going to be reminded that we are called the fish for men. And Easter Sunday is all about that, preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll have two services on that day, one at 9 and one at 11. We're planning to accommodate between six and 700 people on that day. And I need your help to do that. I need you to take, take part in filling out this card and tacking it on there and going and fishing for men. Would you do that this week? And, and would you make it a priority to, to put a name to it? Here's what I, I promise you will do. Look up here. I promise you that our staff every Tuesday morning or every Tuesday afternoon at one o'clock, we will pray by name for every single person that is posted on that cross. Who is God putting on your heart right now? Who needs Jesus Christ? Who needs a church home? Who needs hope? Write their name down. We'll pray for them for the next four or five weeks. On April 4th, we'll preach the gospel. And we hope that every single name that's tacked to that cross will be in attendance on Easter Sunday. If you agree with the Bible, say amen. amen. Stand to your